China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week, I'm joined by Dmitry Gorgiev, the Associate Professor of Political Science at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. Today, we'll be discussing his forthcoming book, Retrofitting Leninism, Participation Without Democracy in a Modern China. Demeter, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jude. I'm thrilled to be here. So um, I typically start by asking folks for a question about their intellectual biography, but I, I had a more specific ask of you. In the acknowledgments of the book you have, I thought a really interesting story about one of your early trips to China in 2004, but that coalescing with memories of your childhood in, in, in Bulgaria under an autocratic regime there. And I wondered if you could talk about how your, your childhood in Bulgaria shaped how you approached or approached China's political system. My family fled Bulgaria just as uh, the communist government was starting to fall apart. And so I had that background, the kind of the fragility of authoritarianism, how quickly things can disintegrate. And, you know, when I went to China and I saw just, you know, the, the kind of the healthy chaos at that time in, in 2004 in, in the streets, kind of the, the, the various things that people were engaged in. You know, I, I had that same kind of feeling that there's no way uh, that you can control all of this. There's no way uh, that this is going to just kind of keep moving along under an authoritarian state. And so, I, I, you know, I got it completely wrong, um, <laughs> obviously. And as I've you know, spent now how many years studying China, I've come to also reflect back on some of the parallels with Bulgaria. Uh, Bulgaria, for uh, listeners who are, may not be that familiar, is a pretty small country. And interestingly, it tried to govern itself very much the way that China is trying to govern itself right now, through control, through careful planning, and it prided itself on being able to get governance right. It was actually one of the better governed uh, Soviet satellite states. But very quickly, again, that, that fell apart. And so one of the puzzles that's been kind of motivating my research and my curiosity is how China, given the fact that it's much bigger, much more complicated, much more populous, faces many more challenges than Bulgaria did, has managed to kind of figure out along the way how to deal with governance challenges, social, political challenges in ways that the Bulgarian Communist Party uh, clearly wasn't able to. We're going to dive into the, the thesis of your book, which is really fascinating, but there are a few kind of terms I thought perhaps we could spend a few minutes doing some level setting on just at least so we're, we're all using similar definitions. The first one I wanted to ask you is I think in common parlance, we'll use a word like authoritarian and often without uh, an appreciation for the varieties of authoritarianism that exist. And so one, you know, one set of differences in, in authoritarian governments is, is what folks call soft and hard authoritarianism. So I, I wanted to ask if you can explain for us what, what the distinction is between the two. So I, I suppose that the most familiar way that people might relate to this difference, or at least the one that makes sense in my mind, is between the difference between soft and hard power. It's kind of the difference between getting what you want through coercion versus persuasion. And so what I, when I think about authoritarianism, and maybe we'll get to this later, I think about the ends, which in my mind are about control, political control, social control, economic control. But how you arrive at control can take a number of pathways, including coercive pathways, as well as what I describe as more persuasive pathways. 
where society, to some extent, is not perhaps um, deliberately complicit, but is nevertheless a part of the control process. And so when I talk about soft authoritarianism, I'm cueing this idea of control through persuasion. And really, you know, my argument here is building on a literature on soft authoritarianism that started uh, a few decades ago, looking at, by and large, authoritarian regimes in East Asia that were adopting these more persuasive tactics of staying in power without democratizing. A similarly misunderstood or, or superficially understood term, and this is one that I think folks in Washington, D.C. have increasingly used to describe the Xi administration or the CCP today is this phrase Leninism. And I, I like the words legitimacy uh, and ideology. I always suspect if I lined up 10 people, I'd get 15 different answers on, on what Leninism is. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit before we talk about uh, the Chinese variety of Leninism or Leninism with Chinese characteristics, what is kind of a base definition of Leninism as it's used in, in political science? I think it depends on which branch of political science you're, you're speaking to. You know, where, where my kind of origins are and my roots are is in the more institutional side of political science. And so when I think about Leninism, and I, I think um, you know, the literature that I speak to primarily when, when they talk about Leninism, it's about the organizational structure. It's about the compartmentalization of authority, the redundancies of political organs and administrative organs, uh, the complexity, uh, which in many instances looks very, very inefficient. That to me is, is kind of the essence of, of Leninism. Um, this desire to really meticulously organize society into manageable groups, organize the economy into manageable groups, and organize the political establishment also in these very meticulously uh, choreographed groups all under one umbrella. That's uh, where I think uh, Leninism makes the most sense as a, as a concept that is distinct from other forms of political organization. How is a Leninist organization different from, say, the, the structure of a major Fortune 500 corporation? I, I would say in, in two ways. First of all, it, as I mentioned earlier, I think there is no qualms in Leninism about inefficiency and redundancy. There is no profit logic that's driving some sort of uh, reform aimed at reducing complexity. It's, it's much more comfortable having those redundancies because they provide constraints in the system that allow for leaders to better exercise control. And so they're much more willing to sacrifice the gains that could be had from a more efficient structure. I think that that is a, a critical piece of, of Leninism. The other one that I tried to get at in the book is this preoccupation with um, mass inclusion. And a lot of times, you know, that's rhetorical and it doesn't really happen in practice. In, in a few instances in the Chinese case, I argue that it does. That's not something that you would see in a Fortune 500 company to the extent that you see in a Leninist regime. Yes, there may be public relations, uh, there may be advertising campaigns, there may be all these efforts to, to cultivate goodwill, but you don't see the active involvement of millions or um, billions of shareholders in the corporate structure, however uh, performative or rhetorical it may be. It's probably a good segue now with some of that brush cleared to ask you about the main thesis of the book. And what I liked about the way you set the, it up in, uh, in the first few chapters of the book, or at least in the introduction, is I think there is a way that many of us outside observers, folks who aren't studying China on a day-to-day -day basis, think about how the party remains in power. And in some ways, there's probably a similar view 
that the CCP, like the Bulgarian Communist Party and like other Leninist states, remains in power because of brute top-down control and, and coercion. But at the same time, many of us are scratching our head and trying to figure out how the heck the CCP is celebrating its 100th anniversary, you know, nearly 30 years after, after the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. So this issue of kind of what has made the party resilient and adaptive is flummoxing us as well. So you've got a really interesting way of thinking about control that transcends seeing it just as a, a pure top-down exertion of force on, on the population. So I wonder if you could just take, you know, really as much time as you need to lay out the core thesis here of this kind of inclusive element, which you just hinted at in your, in your last answer, and, and how it's operative, and, and how, I think crucially, how it has helped sustained party rule, you know, 100 years uh, after the founding of the CCP. So when I, when I think about control, I, I put it in my mind in scale of, of how much needs to be controlled. So uh, I don't know if, if a, a household is a good metaphor for this, but a small household is easier to control than a very large household with lots of members. And depending on the sophistication of the household, the political economy of the household, the, the need for control is different. And so it's one thing to control an isolated state, uh, one with difficult borders, with limited political activity, limited e economic activity. Once you start expanding the scope of transactions, the amount of different interests at play, once you start opening up to foreign goods, foreign ideas, you know, that complexity increases and the challenge of control increases. And so when I think about um, resilience or, or durability, it's not just you know, what's the, the shelf life of a regime? How long can it stay in power? It's really a kind of a dynamic question. The more the regime wants to uh, grow the, the pie, grow the state, the more its ambitions rise, the more difficult the problem of control becomes. And so, you know, in the Chinese case, I think that the real puzzle and the one that drives a, a lot of the book is how has the Chinese Communist Party not just simply arrived at its 100th anniversary, but arrived with um, a political economy that is light years away from where it was four decades ago. That I think is, is, is kind of the, the really important question. And my answer to that, which we'll probably get to in a little bit, is its ability to both increase its capacity to gain information uh, from various parts of society, from companies, business interests, and process that information into not always great, policies, but at least kind of pragmatic policies that are incentive compatible both to the regime, but also societal and economic actors. And so could you now, I guess, break down a little bit the ways in which the public participates in control, which of course on its face seems contradictory. And as you say in the book, at one point, you know, this puzzle of why individuals would participate in structures of the control which end up limiting their own freedom. So could you talk a little bit at the theoretical level about this kind of bottom-up participation and control? And then, and then as a follow-up, I wanted to ask you about some of the specific elements of participation in oversight planning you know, and information processing. Yeah, so participation, I think, has, you know, has experienced a lot of evolution in the PRC. Some of the more kind of crude forms of participation that, that you and I are both familiar with would be kind of the earlier struggle sessions where people would participate in vicious attacks on their neighbors, uh, vicious attacks on people in their community. 
Today, people participate by reporting trash on the street, by reporting problems with a company they interacted with. You can participate in a multitude of ways. There's formal avenues for participation in decision-making. There's formal uh, avenues for participation in local governance decisions. I guess the, the question is, you know, why would people participate in these types of actions if, you know, if they really think down the game tree, their participation is aiding the control structure. Um, I, I, I don't think that, that too many people you know, go that far down in the thought process. I, I think for a lot of people, you, you, know, you have uh, immediate concerns. You have concerns about um, your children getting into school. You have concerns about pollution from a nearby construction site. And if you feel like there is a way for you to express those concerns, and there is um, some attempt by the state, and we have evidence that there is an attempt by the state to respond back in a what seems like a very timely manner, I think that that builds up a reinforcement of uh, this idea that if you participate a little within the boundaries, there's gains to be had. Can I ask just a, um, as you were talking, I was, I was returning to your household metaphor and I was thinking, well, sure, if a parent orders a child to do their chores, the child is participating in that, but it's not voluntary. So, so how do you make a distinction between kind of feigned voluntary participation that is actually just coercion, you know, is actually just that base coercion. Yeah. So, you know, Phil Roeder, who studies Russia and previously the Soviet Union, you know, he had a great way of kind of making that exact distinction, which was, is it really mass participation in policy and in, in, in politics, or is it just mass participation in implementation of the politics and the policy, right? Um, and you know, what, what I see in the case of China is that there's clearly both of those elements at play, but there is also quite a bit of voluntary participation where people are voluntarily engaging in discussions, uh, whether it's about local governance decisions, uh, where to spend extra money or how to divvy up scarce money. Those are not forced, coerced examples of participation. When people report on what they see as corruption, when people go and sign petitions, a lot of those, I would say the overwhelming majority of those instances are self-motivated in the hope that somehow if you can make yourself heard to the right person, you'll get a reaction. You will get some sort of redress. That's not to say that this clearly uh, happens in all cases, but the hope appears to be present given the numbers of complaints that are filed uh, voluntarily by the public, the number of petitions that are filed by the public, the number of just comments um, that you see being put out there by individuals who, if there was no sense, no hope that anybody's listening, it's hard to explain why they're engaging in that, in that type of behavior. And looking at it from the state's perspective or the regime's perspective, why would the Communist Party increasing and, and continuing today create new mechanisms for this kind of bottom-up participation? Does the party see these as avenues for building regime loyalty? Does it see these as avenues for information gathering? Or, or does it feel that some sort of participation is, is kind of necessary from a regime survival to create citizens as, as stakeholders? My answer, I guess, would be a little bit of all of the above with, I, I think, a, a big pinch of salt on the loyalty idea. I don't think that there's too many people in the regime or people that I've talked to that generally believe that opening up avenues for participation generates loyalty. But I, I do think that it adds to the legitimacy of the system. And I think the important thing to remember is that China is 
even though it's an authoritarian state and there's one party, there are many, many competing interests within that one party. There are many, many competing interests within Chinese society, within the Chinese political economy. And it's not obvious who should be listened to and who should be disregarded, whose interests trump others. And so in that regard, you know, there, there is a, a, a genuine, I think, information benefit that the regime can acquire by opening up these opportunities for interested parties to voice their concerns. It doesn't mean it has to listen to them, but it has that information. Another element is that because a lot of times interests are competing, they can be competing on a geographic level between two different neighborhoods that are competing for an investment project. They could be um, competing between different organs, um, different ministries that are also competing for scarce resources. And by opening up some kind of deliberatory process, the regime has, a, has, a, has an interesting position to play where it can kind of mediate and moderate these competing preferences. And it can kind of stake out its own ground in a way that seems like a compromise between competing interests in society. And so you can't really arrive at that position unless you go through the process. There's another really interesting you know, core part of the book, which is on this idea of, which looks at information, you know, the accumulation and processing of information. And, and I was thinking as I was reading it, you know, of course, you, you all these participatory mechanisms, and, and again, anyone who's lived in China or spends any time on the Chinese internet sees lots of avenues through which citizens can be inputting information, feedback. And of course, all of this is gathered. And I, and I wanted to know what role access to information plays in parties' governance structure. And, and as a, a sidestep for a moment, you know, there have been one of the assumed, you know, long historical assumed flaws of an authoritarian system is lack of information. You know, F.A. Hayek, who won the Nobel Prize, wrote a very famous essay before World War II talking about the real flaw in central planning is the central planner will never have enough information inputs to be able to accurately set the price for anything, right? It has to be a bottom-up, you know, spontaneous order with price signals being determined, you know, at, at the point of transaction. And, and as you quote in the book, you know, Martia Sen talks about one of the limitations of, of authoritarian systems is, you know, the autocrat won't have access to accurate information on sentiment and needs because there's, there's not the mechanisms by which you see in a democratic open society of public feedback. One thing Beijing seems to not lack is data and information, and partly because a lot of civic discourse is happening on you know, online platforms, which Beijing directly or indirectly has access to all of that. So is it the case that these, you know, the aggregation of this information and data has allowed Beijing to overcome some of these assumed longstanding shortcomings of, of authoritarian systems? I think so, but perhaps in a slightly different way than, than, than simply figuring out how to get all the information. I, I completely agree that this is kind of the, the longstanding challenge to authoritarianism, is having enough information to be able to control prices, control markets, control people. In most instances in history, the institutions in place to acquire that information were um, insufficient. In the case of Bulgaria, uh, I think that that was also the case. As the economy became more complicated, uh, the intelligence gathering institutions really failed to keep up. In the Chinese case, as you pointed out, that doesn't seem to be a problem anymore. There seems to be a abundance, you know, maybe even too much information. I think we're all kind of familiar with the challenge of having too much information without knowing how to do uh, what to do with it. And so in the way I've thought about the, the problem, I've uh, transitioned to not worrying as much about how information is acquired, 
there's a variety of ways that information is acquired, sometimes through the voluntary participation that I talked about earlier, but increasingly through passive forms of information gathering from what people say online, from the way people move around in the streets with their cell phones in their pockets. There's uh, so much information and really the challenge now I think is how do you process that information? So it's less of an aggregation problem and more of a computational problem. And actually the computational problem is something that um, scholars were also worried about and thinking about uh, back in the, in the 40s, 50s and 60s when it came to authoritarianism is that yes, you can generate a network for compiling lots of information. And Leninist regimes are, are very good at that. They're very good at documentation. They're very good at reporting. But ultimately, you have to figure out how to process that information and how to compute meaningful signal from what also includes a lot of noise. You know, and obviously the parallels there between modern day intelligence agencies is pretty striking, where especially you think of something like the NSA, you've got extraordinary amounts of data coming in. But as you say, the ability to sort of compute and make meaningful, you know, uh, extract meaningful insights from that is difficult given, given the volume. I, I wanted to shift now to kind of thinking about shortcomings or limitations of this participation. And so, you know, I think the first is you, you'd sent me some show notes and, and had referenced, you know, the idea that one of the issues that inclusion creates as, a, as an unintended byproduct is that you know, citizens or participants begin to think about governance in more complex ways, uh, transcending just the idea of looking at governance in terms of outputs, right? What does governance do? So what does that mean, functionally speaking? And, and, and as you say in your notes, you know, this likely creates a, a liability. What, what is that liability? And I guess, what are some of the ways that you found that, that participants, how are they thinking about governance in, in unique ways? You know, earlier you, you referenced kind of the metaphor of a, a Fortune 500 company, or, um, and I, I talked about shareholders, and I think this is still a useful metaphor. If, if society is just simply a shareholder, but they have no role in corporate decision-making, what you focus on is price, right? And, and you want um, output in terms of higher prices for your shares. Once people start getting involved, once people start getting invited into discussions, they start asking about process. They start about social, asking about social responsibility. So I think that that's, you know, to some extent, the metaphor that's happening here is that when people are not included in the process, it's tempting to, you know, simplify your expectations in terms of performance. And I think that for for a large part of Chinese citizens, that is kind of the default expectation. As long as the economy is doing well, as long as you know there's still some hope of income mobility for the individual, that is enough to generate at least some portion of legitimacy. Once you start uh, involving people in the decision-making process, once they realize that, look, there are alternative options here, um, and some of those options benefit me, some of them benefit someone else, it's a difficult decision, but I see the logic of it. You, you know, they, they start asking questions about, well, you know, did we make the right decision? Given what the goals were and the difficulties in, in choosing an option to get there, did we ultimately arrive at those um, specific policy goals, not a abstract um, economic number. And so you could see that as, an, as a liability. I think Bruce Dixon puts it best when he talks about the dictator's dilemma in his recent book, whereby improving on governance raises expectations for better governance um, in the future. And you could see that as a potential liability, or you can see it as a way for the regime to really include higher expectations and, and tie, perhaps not the leader's hands, but administrators, local officials, 
um, different ministries tie their hands to these expectations. And I think we have to remember that there's a range of mutual interest between an authoritarian regime, uh, which is clearly interested in its own survival and its own ingrandization, and society, which is interested in clean water, clean air, and a better life in the future. And corruption, misallocation of resources, mistakes in the implementation process, they cut uh, at both ends of that. And so I think that you know it can be a liability in terms of it sets the bar higher, but it can also be seen as a healthy expectation from a regime control perspective. That's a good point to, you know, as a final question, ask you to prognosticate a little bit on where Chinese governance will go. And I think sort of building on your previous answer, and I'd like to quote in the conclusion of your book, you have a metaphor, which I really, I found striking. And obviously you did too, because you included it, but it came from a, a Shenzhen uh, official. Sea vessels moving at high speed generate turbulence in their wake. As long as they move swiftly enough, the disruption is unlikely to threaten those aboard. As the vessel slows, however, it can get caught up in the unrest generated in its passing. First, the void left in its wake turns to drag. Next, if the vessel flows too fast or tries to change course too suddenly, the forward ripples cast from the stern risk swapping its rear or broadside. The bigger the ship, the bigger the risk. Why did that metaphor strike you so much and, and, and why at the end of your book in the conclusion, was that an apposite metaphor for thinking about for thinking about China's governance? The reason I, I thought it was it was uh, appropriate for me and appropriate for that place in the book is that um, when we think about China now in 2021, it's hard to not notice the immense achievements of the Chinese people, whether it's in lifting themselves out of poverty. Uh, whether it's the, the intellectual progress that we've seen in industry, the now apparent investment in environmental sustainability. I mean, these are these are serious uh, achievements, and I think that the Chinese public needs to be very proud of them. And as researchers, you know, when we think about the place that the country and the party is in today, it's hard to not notice this record of success. But China is at a, is at a very uh, critical juncture right now where as incomes rise, uh, so do the costs of labor. As the population ages, so do the costs of a social welfare. Um, and increasingly, I think um, the challenges uh, facing the country are gonna be redistributive. Uh, there are gonna be very clear winners and losers uh, within society uh, at the individual level, at the group level, at the sector level, and those could turn into big ripples. And so the, the reason the metaphor I think is helpful for me is because it it helps kind of articulate the type of challenge that the CCP is facing in terms of governance. But it also, I think, at least in my mind, also cues the importance of the controlled inclusion architecture. One of the, the key features of controlled inclusion or the kind of the theory behind the book is that inclusion is manageable because it's controlled, because society is compartmentalized and fragmented and kept apart, which makes it very difficult for different interests, for different populations to, to cooperate and coordinate. But by having these controls in place and allowing inclusion in a, in a kind of a choreographed and controlled manner, you can uh, extract information from common interests between different groups, uh, as well as competing interests from different groups. And if the main challenges looking forward are gonna be these kind of re redistributive challenges of governance, the architecture in place, I think is in some ways well-suited to try and address and take advantage of competing interests within society 
moving forward, whether it's between retirees and um, young workers, whether it's between public enterprises and private enterprises. As a, as a final question, and as I was listening to you talk, I was kind of nodding my head. And then this thought keeps popping into my mind when I think about resiliency in the party. I keep thinking about Xi Jinping. And I keep wondering if there is a tension growing between the party's success and Xi Jinping's personal political success. And so I wondered if you could muse on this a little bit. You've written a lot about Xi Jinping and his power centralization. You've mentioned in this book, but you've written previously on this as, as, as well. How do you fit the story you just talked about of, of this controlled inclusion, resiliency in the party in a 10 to 15 year window where Xi Jinping is the dominant leader and how his imprint on the system will shape its, its capacities and resiliencies? Do you see a tension growing between that, or do you think the party will be able to withstand him? I don't know if I can forecast on the, the last part of your question, um, but I, I think that success, is, is, as you probably agree, is a, is a kind of a multi-edged sword, and it can, it can cut in many directions. And I think that, um, to some extent, there is um, a bit of arrogance in the Chinese state about how effective its approach to control has been. There's a bit of, I think, arrogance in their ability to acquire information, process it, and, and make decisions. And that may, uh, with the help of technology, I think that that um, may result in um, increasing kind of outsourcing what used to be done by party cells and, and kind of grassroots informants, neighborhood watch women and men, outsourcing that to algorithms, outsourcing that to tech companies. And in the process, you know, you, you kind of lose that connection that you had with the individuals. And so I, I think that that is a, a, a serious threat, a serious risk to, to the model. Another kind of you know, edge to success that I think is risky is that as the regime becomes more effective and more successful at governance, you know, if people can expect that the, the, the traffic will run as scheduled, crime is low, you know, they, they can borrow money and, and, and buy products with some security. As, as all of that uh, infrastructure improves, I think the politics side becomes less important. Kind of the, the, the political connection to who's running that system, as long as the system is running well, starts to become less important. And so when, when I think about Xi Jinping today um, and kind of the ideological campaign that he has led, uh, which of course centers around him, but also around the party, it, it's part of me also uh, tends to think that um, this is a reaction to a deep-seated political insecurity that the party is no longer relevant to the average Chinese citizen, that the CCP, what it stands for morally, what it stands for ideologically, is losing its kind of attractive capabilities. And so I think that we can see Xi Jinping as, as simply a power-hungry individual that's taken advantage of the country, taken advantage of the people, and taken advantage of the party. Uh, we can also see Xi Jinping as um, somebody that the party has, to some extent, vested power um, and influence in for fear that they're losing kind of a, a political uh, connection with the masses. Well, that's a great question, dilemma, conundrum for us to, to end on. And I really you know, just want to thank you for your time and, and really enjoyed the conversation and really enjoyed the book. And I think this will have a really important impact on how we think about Chinese governance. So I, I really appreciate this line of work. 
the book Retrofitting Leninism is, is out in, in September, um, and, and I hope we can have future discussions on this. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jude, and thank you, thank you for, for inviting me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 